Chapter 20 of Studies in Stagecraft by Clayton Hamilton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Royston Coppinger, Brooklyn, New York. Studies in Stagecraft by Clayton Hamilton. Chapter 20 A New Defense of Melodrama. 1. It is the fate of many amiable words to be debased by a vulgar usage until they acquire a derogatory connotation. Thus has the sweet word homely been deflowered, so that nowadays to assure a woman that she is homely has ceased to seem a gentle compliment. The adjective amateur, which in its original sense exactly defines the quality of such delicate and loving art as that of Mr. Austin Dobson or of Mr. Kenneth Graham, has come to denote the daubing of a bungler. Anybody who labors earnestly, though only in a humble way, to fulfill the purpose of criticism, which was defined by Matthew Arnold as a disinterested endeavor to learn and propagate the best that is known and thought in the world, must endure the continual discouragement of hearing the word criticism bandied about on careless lips as if it signified an interested endeavor to discredit the nobility of art. If one may muse for a moment in the mood of Elia, would it not be a gracious act to erect a monument to fallen words like censure, common, cynic, nice, mistress, gentleman, to remind the present age of what they used to mean before they fell on evil days and evil tongues? In the vocabulary of theatre-goers, no word has suffered more from this iniquitous degeneration than the adjective melodramatic. Careless writers are now accustomed to call a play melodramatic when they wish to indicate that it is bad, whereas they might with equal logic try to damn a play by calling it tragic or comic or poetic. There are good tragedies and bad tragedies, good melodramas and bad melodramas, and it is no more sound to assume that all melodramas are bad than to assume that all tragedies are good. But the very word melodrama has so fallen into disrepute that nowadays when a man puts forth a melodrama he usually pretends that it is something else and writes in a few extraneous passages to justify his press agent in advertising it as a social study or a comedy. Consequently, if we are to converse with any seriousness about the noble art of melodrama, we must agree at the outset to divest the word of all derogatory connotation. Most people consider it pedantic to insist on definitions, and the minority of writers who refuse to use such an adjective as romantic without explaining what they mean by it are usually labeled academic, which is supposed to be synonymous with dull. Yet a great deal of the fret and bother of the world would be averted if people in general would only educate themselves to definition. For instance, if only the socialists would agree upon a definition of socialism and formulate it in a single paragraph we should all be able to determine at a glance whether or not we wanted to be socialists. And this procedure would save reformers the expense of printing innumerable pamphlets and spare us a great deal of mouthing and sawing the air. By melodrama, if we use the word nicely, is signified a serious play in which the incidents determine and control the characters. There are, to be sure, a few other abiding features of melodrama that should be accounted for in any final definition of the form, and these we shall consider in due time. But for the present, 
This primary principle will serve to convince us that melodrama not only has an excuse for being, but is in reality one of the noblest types of art. In both tragedy and comedy, the characters control the plot. In farce, as in melodrama, a train of incidents is foreordained and the characters are subsequently woven into the pattern of destiny that has been predetermined for them. And it is clearly reasonable for us to accept that convention of criticism which regards tragedy and comedy as more heroic than their sister arts. But life itself is more frequently melodramatic than tragic, and much more often farcical than comic. In fact, the utter dominance of character over coincidence is so rare in the record of humanity as to call for chapter headings in our histories. And since the purpose of the drama, like that of all the other arts, is to represent the truth of life, the theater must always rely on farce and melodrama to complete its comment on humanity. Much of our life, in fact, by far the major share, is casual instead of causal. As Stevenson remarked in his Gossip on Romance, the pleasure that we take in life is of two sorts, the active and the passive. Now we are conscious of a great command over our destiny. Anon we are lifted up by circumstance as by a breaking wave, and dashed, we may not know how, into the future. It is not granted to many of us to realize with any consistency that boast of Henley's, and to regard ourselves as masters of our fate or captains of our soul. For nearly all the good or ill that happens to us is drifted to us, uncommanded, undeserved, upon the tides of chance. It is this immutable truth, the persistency of chance in the serious concerns of life and the inevitable influence of accident on character, that melodrama aims to represent. And to damn melodrama as an inconsiderable type of art is to deny the divinity of fortune whom the wisest of all men, in the seventh canto of his hell, exalted, quote, with the other deities, unquote. 2. It's because melodrama casts its emphasis on incident instead of character that it has been in every age the most popular of all the types of drama. Each of us is avid of adventure, and to find ten dollars in the street strikes us as more interesting than to earn ten dollars by accomplishing our share in the established division of labor. Similarly, though in this we are not logical, it strikes us as more interesting to be gagged and bound and rescued by the provident police than to quarrel with our wife or husband over the duration of the boiling of an egg and to purchase forgiveness by the gift of an ostrich feather or a box of trust-made but untrustworthy cigars. Though in our waking senses we may contemn that deity whose name is fortune, we all worship her in dreams, and in the theater we bless the happy chance that agreeably rewards the innocent and consigns the villainous to jail. In our own lives we remember what has happened to us by some lucky or unlucky accident, more vividly than we remember what we were. Our past selves are clouded with oblivion, but our past adventures float before the eyes of memory as stories instant and alive. So, in our experience of theater-going, we forget characters, like Hedda Gobbler, but we remember incidents, like that moment in The Two Orphans when the lost Louise is heard singing in the street and the incarcerated Henriette is stopped at the door by the entering guards while she hears her sister being dragged unwillingly away to a continuance of beggary. Adventure moves us more than character, because adventure is always with us. 
It is often an adventure to look over the edge of our morning paper at the person seated opposite in the subway. But character is an element of destiny of which we grow aware only in the small minority of incidents which are commanded and controlled. And there is another point which explains the popularity of melodrama, and that is that, since the characters are not rigidly defined, we experience no difficulty in putting ourselves in the positions of the characters and imagining that what is happening upon the stage is happening to us. We observe the clearly drawn characters of tragedy with a conscious aloofness that is, to some degree, discomforting. Hedda Gobbler interests us merely as a specimen, and what happens to her does not in any real sense happen to us. The fact of what she is convinces us that she must ultimately kill herself. But if we were flung into the same position, we should crawl out by some easier way. We realize that Othello is doomed to kill his wife, but we understand also that the tragical oblation is absurd. If we were in the same position, we should perceive that Desdemona had been maligned by the perversity of evidence. We should not behave like Hedda or Othello, because we are not at all like either of them. Each of them is clearly characterized and convinces us of an essential disparity with ourselves. But in melodrama the heroine and hero are not clearly characterized. They are represented not as particular people, but merely as anybody involved in the situation of the moment. And we naturally take the stage, adopt their destiny as our own, and experience in our particular imagination all that is happening to them. Thus, in Mr. Gillette's admirable melodrama entitled held by the enemy, when the captured Confederate lieutenant confesses to the Union court-martial that he is a spy, and glories in his sinister vocation, inviting with a smile the death that will complete his sense of duty done. It is not so much to him that the incident occurs, as to you or me, seated in the audience. For at that moment, in imagination, we take the stage and speak the words of martyrdom ourselves. For it is the special grace of melodrama to represent not what a particular person will do in a given situation, but what anybody would do under such a stress of circumstance. And since anybody is easily identifiable with ourself, we imagine the situation as happening to us and adopt it into our particular experience. This is, of course, the philosophic point which explains the popularity of that special species of melodrama which in New York flourishes on 3rd Avenue and 8th Avenue. The devotees of cheap melodrama are workaday people to whom, in the orderly procession of the days, nothing noteworthy ever happens. And in the theater they demand the sort of play in which surprising and startling adventures will happen not only to the people on the stage, but to themselves. Therefore the characters on the stage must not be so sharply drawn as to be set apart from any person in the audience and adventure must be represented for its own sake, regardless of the personality of the people it involves. As Sir Thomas Brown loved to lose himself in a mystery, so the auditors of our ten, twenty, and thirty-cent theatres love to lose themselves in an irresponsible train of circumstances which conceivably might happen to themselves. In a word, they go to the theatre to enjoy themselves, which is to say their own imagined hesitancies and imperilments and decidedly not to enjoy some totally different and extraneous creature like Hedda Gobbler or Othello. The popularity as a character of Bertha, the sewing-machine girl, or Nellie, the beautiful cloak model, is explicable by the fact that neither of them is, in any precise sense, a character at all, and that therefore any woman in the audience can, without the slightest straining of imagination, 
set herself in the heroine's place and experience vicariously the adventures that befall her. Let us recapitulate a moment, for the sake of clearness. We've already observed that melodrama epitomizes the major portion of habitual experience, because it emphasizes incident above character as a factor in human destiny. And also, since it leaves the hero and the heroine uncharacterized, that it permits, more easily than tragedy, that the spectator should in imagination take the stage and assume as his own the adventures of the plot. But there is another very important point which must be accounted for in any final definition of the art of melodrama. This point, perhaps the most important that we have to consider, is that the abiding mood of melodrama is an absolute and dauntless optimism. The world of melodrama is a just and lucky world where all things fall out fitly. We are granted from the outset an assurance that in the end the guilty will be punished and the virtuous attain their due reward. No innocent Ophelia or Cordelia will be dragged down in the maelstrom of catastrophe. Our cherished characters are flung repeatedly into imminent danger of death, and we feel their pangs and perils as our own. But we know all along, and bless ourselves with knowing, that no one will be killed except the villain. This is the great charm of melodrama, that it deals with charmed lives. Sherlock Holmes will surely escape from the gas chamber, though how, indeed, we cannot possibly foresee. In watching a melodrama of a cruder sort, we experience this same sense of a comfortable providence. You may lock the heroine in a lion's cage, throw her off of Brooklyn Bridge, tie her to the subway tracks, and dangle her by a rope from the windy summit of the Singer Tower. But we know all along that the kindly gods who look after the destiny of heroines will rescue her from harm and consign her as good as new to the strong arms of the hero. And there is another matter which, in the interests of criticism, it is surely not indelicate to mention, and that is that we derive a world of solid comfort from our certainty that the virtue of the heroine is inviolable. At every moment she is chaperoned by destiny. What Milton expressed supremely in his portrayal of the lady in Comus our melodramatists repeat with cruder emphasis, namely, that virginity is its own defense and virtue shields itself with the spiritual armor. In The Deep Purple, which is one of the best of recent melodramas, the silly girl of a heroine who has run away from home with a deep-dyed villain with whom she thinks herself in love is providentially preserved in purity till she may meet and marry the most lovable of heroes. Here is a vision of the world as we would have it, if ever we were erected to the exalted state of Zeus upon Olympus, it is thus that we should stage-direct the tremendous drama of humanity. It is true, indeed, that life as it exists is not so ordered. One of our best architects and most serviceable citizens is absurdly slain in a taxicab collision. Kentucky sends to Congress a man who is once convicted of complicity in an ignominious murder. Corruption buys a seat in the Senate— a valuable novelist is shot down by a madman. We look about us and it seems that there is neither right nor reason in the inappealable decrees of destiny. But meanwhile, the noble art of melodrama stands up scornful before many spears and confronts the iniquity of fate with a laugh, quote, broad as a thousand beeves at pasture, unquote. No art has ever succeeded because of its defects. And the fact that melodrama has been and is perennially popular can be explained only by what is great and noble in it, 
Melodrama answers one of the most profound of human needs. It ministers to that motive which philosophers term the will to believe. It looks at life, as Paul enjoined humanity to look at it, with faith and hope. So, when the toilers in our sweatshops attend the ten, twenty, and thirty-cent theaters, they escape into a region where faith is not an idle jest and hope is not an irony, and therefore, when they reassume the heavy and the weary weight of all their unintelligible world, they may yet smile backward in remembrance of that momentary dream world in which destiny was just and kind and good. A happy face in the street is a gift to the community, and this art that always wears a happy face is a gift to humanity at large. 3. We may now redefine melodrama as a serious play in which the incidents determine and control the characters, and in which the auditors are assured from the outset that all will come out as they wish it in the end. Thus defined, melodrama must be admitted to include many of the most important plays in the history of the drama. It must not be supposed that the art began with Victoria and Sardou. It is at least as old as Euripides, and was highly honored in the Spain of Calderon and Lope, and the England of the spacious times of Great Elizabeth. Many of the stirring plays which used to pass for tragedies in our histories of the drama are now seen to be merely melodramas. Tragedy must exhibit an inevitable doom, and the inevitable is nearly as rare in art as it is in life. Life itself is seldom tragic and in any exact and technical sense, and there are very few unquestionable tragedies in the history of art. Victor Hugo, who admitted that his three prose plays were melodramas, thought that his plays in verse were tragedies, but we now perceive that Hernani and Ruy Blas and all the rest of them are melodramas also, and we like them nonetheless because of the change of label. Those windy suspirations of forced breath, which in mid-Victorian days were esteemed as tragedies, and are still looked upon with loving reminiscence by the backward-minded Mr. William Winter, were all melodramas, and melodramas of a rather crude and secondary sort. The Virginius of Sheridan Knowles, the Richelieu of Bulwer-Lytton, the Fool's Revenge of Tom Taylor, an adaptation from Hugo, were melodramas pure and simple though they wore the literary trappings and the suits of tragedy. It is always disconcerting to find one art masquerading in the dress of another. A melodrama that pretends to be a tragedy afflicts us ultimately with an overwhelming sense that it is ashamed of itself. And the sense of shame is incompatible with the sense of easy enjoyment. Retrospective criticism must therefore finally prefer such frank and gloating melodramas as the Tower de Nil of the Elder Dumas, the Fedora of Sardou, the Two Orphans of Denery, or those favorites of our fathers, the Ticket of Leave Man and Jim the Penman. Jim the Penman thrilled the younger generation when it was revived a few years ago, and the Two Orphans, which is always with us, is, if not a thing of beauty, at least a joy forever. Since melodrama casts its emphasis on action rather than on character, it calls far more than tragedy for an exhibition of the utmost mechanical equipment of the stage. We turn to the tragedies and comedies of other ages to see the highest development of the drama in those times. But if we wish to acquaint ourselves with the highest development of theatric presentation in any age, we must turn our attention to its melodramas. When Mr. Belasco produces a quiet comedy like the concert, he exhibits less emphatically his skill in stage direction 
than when he produces a melodrama like The Girl of the Golden West. The Great Ruby gave more noticeable evidence of the ability of Augustine Daly as a producer than did The School for Scandal or The Merchant of Venice. The mechanism of melodrama has been carried to the highest efficiency in London on the stage of Drury Lane. In The Whip, which ran a year at Old Drury, a railroad train was wrecked upon the stage in pursuance of the villain's plot to kill the hero's racehorse which was being transported in a boxcar. And the sight of the derailed and overturning engine panting and puffing bravely after the intolerable crash thrilled through the thousandfold assembled audience and evoked a tremor even from the sophisticated critic. In The Sins of Society, another Drury Lane melodrama, a battleship went down, with all hands rallied round the flag. It may be finer dramatic art for Mrs. Fisk to sit still and think hard in Rosmersholm, but it is more wonderful theatric art to sink a ship upon the stage. And on purely human grounds, there are many reasons for regarding a sinking ship as a more pathetic spectacle than a falling woman. And this suggests a final word that must be said in favor of melodrama. It gives the actors an opportunity to act. In every scene they have to do things. They cannot, like Mrs. Patrick Campbell, turn away from the audience and think with their backs. Thinking with a back may be the most mystical and esoteric performance that is possible to humankind. At least we have, in support of this belief, the high authority of Monsieur Auguste Rodin, the sole surviving titan of these desultory days, who once told a visitor of his that the secret of his penseur is that he thinks with his back. But on the stage it is surely more thrilling to watch the blind Louise grope her way down the banister of a declining stairway and then pass inadvertently within six inches of the prostrate form of the fainting Henriette, whom she has sought so long and with so many heartaches, and is not destined to discover until the whirligig of the melodrama brings in its final revenges. Even so, as a matter of mere acting, we would rather watch the Negro servant in the last act of secret service remove the bullets from the stacked guns of the Union guards than watch the facial play of Hedda Gobbler as she sits in silence debating her problem of impending suicide. For in this the theater differs from life, that, on the stage, Action speaks louder than character, and to do is more important than to be. Latterly, there has appeared in our theatres a new type of the sort of melodrama that is ashamed of itself, which, while not pretending to be tragedy, pretends to be a serious study of contemporary social problems. A definitive example of this type is the Judith Zeren of Mr. C. M. S. McClellan, which masqueraded as a social study and very promptly failed. In this play, Mr. McClellan spoiled a good melodramatic story by submerging it beneath oceans of tall talk about capital and labor. Nowadays, it is considered an evidence of earnestness to talk about capital and labor, just as in the Middle Ages it was considered an evidence of earnestness to talk about how many angels could dance on the head of a pin. Fashions change in tall talk. While the singing world rolls on, but when a man finds a melodrama made to his hand, why, in the name of art, should he ruin it by trying to turn it into something else? The merit of the deep purple, on the other hand, inheres in the frankness with which the authors avow and flourish the fact that they are writing melodrama. The new melodrama will never rival the glory of the old until it sloughs off all sophistication and disguise, and comes forward frankly as a play of plot supervised by a kindly and ingratiating providence. Masqueril becomes ignoble only when he masquerades as a nobleman, 
and a lesser art retains its dignity only so long as it refrains from emulation of a greater. Judith Zeren is dead, and so is the fool hath said which tried to be a tragedy. Meanwhile, Mr. Gillette is still winning golden encomiums with secret service. And those who remember are still eager for another slashing voyage through the tossed and foaming seas of Denery. End of chapter 20 Recording by Royston Coppinger, Brooklyn, New York